Would you turn with me to the book of 3rd John? We're going to finish this book of this wonderful letter um, as the Apostle John talks and he teaches. And I believe the point is to be free of intimidation. That God would desire for us to be free from intimidating leadership. Intimidating leadership that is abusive. Intimidating leadership that is not biblical. 3 John chapter 1 verses 9 through 14. He says here, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing him, us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren. Either he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Father, we come to hear from you. We want to know what this text is saying. How we are not to be intimidated by unbiblical manipulative leadership, but we are to receive those who preach the gospel, teach the gospel. And so we ask, Father, that you would teach us through this text. Help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember it was uh, in South Asia where I was teaching. I was, it was a sweaty, sweaty day. It was like 90% humidity. And we're sitting there, the fan's on, but it doesn't help, you know, when it's that humid, you know. It's, it was so hot, and I was asking the student, I said, because he was leading a rebellion. And I said, please repent. Please turn from your sin. You are starting to garner popularity and garner, and what he wanted to do was take control and to teach his doctrine and to teach what he believed was right. And he not only said that, he, was, he started to go around and speak with other students and trying to influence them and trying to get their, his popularity covered there. He even, he even threatened us. He says, you know what? We may not just come to graduation. In fact, my mom might disrupt the ceremony. I mean, what a coward. Your mom's going to come up, right? My mom's going to fight my battles for me, right? And I, I, I pled with him to repent. Please don't do this. You're going to ruin the peace of the church. You know, uh, in Ephesians, it tells us to diligently preserve the unity of the faith, the faith centered on truth. And he didn't care. Um, praise the Lord, there was no real up, uh, uprising. The other students saw the error of his ways and decided to follow leadership. But I had to 
sternly warn him. Uh, I don't even know. He, he just still kind of ignores what happened. But God has called us to not be intimidated by folks who don't even hold to the scriptures. To not be intimidated. And sadly, we have to talk about something that I hate talking about. And that is the entrance of church politics. The entrance of personalities and manipulation into church politics for their own agenda. I hate talking about this because it shouldn't be in the church. Now, I come from a background where, praise the Lord, I had elders who stood in the front and protected me. I didn't even have to deal with this. I grew up in a nice place where I was cultivated in Christ. All I, all I really had to do was grow in Christ, grow in the scriptures, receive discipleship, grow in discipleship. I was encouraged. And, and yet, all, all in the background, these elders stood to preserve the unity of the faith. And so I believe that John is writing this letter to Gaius, if you recall, he says to open the floodgates of your house in hospitality to those who preach the gospel. And now he's going to pivot. And I believe that this passage, God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would aid gospel workers in the midst of prideful intimidation. You would aid gospel workers in the midst of prideful intimidation. There are two hills that you as a congregation, you as a believer in Christ, you have to stand your ground. There are two hills where you have to die. In receiving those who are part of gospel work. First, as a congregation, individually, you have to stop ambitious, self-ambitious people. You have to stop self-ambitious people. Notice, I don't say God-ambitious. God-ambition is good. Okay? In 1 Timothy, it says, He who desires or aspires to that office of elder. That's a good desire. One who desires to share the gospel. That's a good desire. One who desires to serve in the local church. Desires to um, help the poor. One who desires to... to broadcast Christ. Those are great desires. You ought to desire it. You ought to go for it. You ought to go for broke in that, with reckless abandon in that. What I'm talking about is self-ambitious people. People who want to, uh, who want to lift themselves up, self-aggrandizement, who want to be the center of the focus, who desire to praise himself or herself over than the praises of Christ. It is the exact opposite when, when they ask John the Baptist, what is, your, what is his desire? What does he want to do? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. It is rather than that is Christ must decrease and I must increase. It is like what we talked about last, last Sunday. It's, it's, it's the person who would take a ministry and name it after themselves. Well, this is Angelo Tolentino ministry. I want to focus on myself. I want you to know about Angelo Tolentino, right? Which is quite ridiculous, right? Are we not here to glorify Christ? There are two hills, but you have to stand on. The first one is stop self-ambitious people. Stop them. You have to first, in verse 9, recognize the motive of ungodly pride. The motive of ungodly pride. He says here in verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes incredible his name is forever in scripture you got to think about this 
if your name's going to be in Scripture, I want it to be for something good. Everyone through the ages of church forever and ever will know Diotrephes was full of himself. Right? Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So first he says, I wrote something to the church. And many scholars would say that John, it wasn't 1 John, it wasn't 2 John, but he wrote a letter to the church and somehow Diotrephes either intercepted it, stopped it, halted it, threw it away. He was blocking communication of other godly sources. Any other, and this is what happens with folks who are... Um, who are focused on their own glory rather than the glory of Christ, they don't think that other people can have input into you. They don't think that other people can, have, can be, teach you. Now, there's a difference, okay? Here's the difference. As a pastor, I have to be careful for the sheep of false teaching that may enter into the church. But having said that, if there are good teachers, godly teachers... I want them to have influence on us, to challenge us on our thinking. That's why we're not a church that simply is just by itself. We have guest speakers coming all the time, but it's the ones who are, what, focused on the truth, the ones who will preach the gospel in its purity, right? The ones who will challenge us in our thinking in Scripture, not the ones who will teach the latest fad, the latest book or so. Or so. But he blocks the communication of other godly sources. Any other godly communication in his mind must be blocked with no real scriptural basis. Why don't you want to read this? Because, because I said. That's how it is. Usually the leadership is like this. Because I said, there's no real scriptural basis. You, he has no argument from scripture, but simply it's because it's my preference. It's my liking. See, brothers and sisters, the only way, and this is what God has called you as a congregation to do, is to be Bereans, like it says in the book of Acts. To know your word, to know the word of God so well that when you see a, a counterfeit, you'd be able to say, well, that's not, that's not true. That's not what God says. It's the idea that this person, Diotrephes, was in a sense of being threatened. It threatened his position. It th threatened his prestige. He desired to be preeminent over others. He desired to be preeminent over others. Notice he says, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them. Now this word here, who loves to be first, and this is how he describes Diotrephes. It's a conjunction of two Greek words, philo and prodos. And if you just listen, you know the word philo and it, it becomes the, uh, the word for, that is used in Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love. So there's love, right? And prodos, we know what a prototype is, right? When you have a car, remember when the electric cars came out? Everyone was kind of, I just want to see how the first ones come out first. You, know, you just kind of want to watch it. Or when a new computer comes out, you always want someone else to buy it and just kind of watch it first. Because there's usually bugs. But what, what, uh, what this is saying is, this is the person who loves Philo, Prados, loves to be first. Loves to strive to be first. Will not take a back seat. Will not sit down and hear and listen. Okay. Wants to be a leader by self-proclaiming his position, her position. 
likes to be first in rank or position. Likes the limelight. Likes the status. See, Jesus condemned this. Look at Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 and verse 46. Jesus was condemning this. If you remember... Verse 45, while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, and then here's Jesus, okay? These are Jesus' words, and he's telling his people this warning. Beware of the scribes. In other texts, it will say Pharisees. Beware of them. They like to walk around in long robes. They love Respectful greetings in the marketplace. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. And here he says, Beware, they like to walk around in long robes. That means they like to be noticed for their spirituality, their holiness. They love respectful greetings in the marketplace. They like to be called a certain thing, right? If any of you call me Reverend Angelo, we're going to have some words, okay? They like to be classified. I am doctor such and such, reverend, his holiness, majesty. Right? This is why, brothers and sisters, this is why I have a strong conviction about these things. Just call me Angelo. I'm just a brother just like you, right? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Chief seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets, they always want to be recognized for their own position but in their in the back of their mind they devour widows homes that houses that means they take advantage of them financially for appearance sake they offer long prayers they want to be seen as spiritual go back to third john third john those are the kind of folks rather than Allowing God to lift you up, right? Remember in 1 Peter, it says, humble yourselves. What? Under the mighty hand of God. What does it say? And he will lift you up in due time. In Christian leadership and in Christian service and in ministry, the way up is down. Did you know that? And that's, that makes perfect sense for Christ. The, how he was exalted. The way up is down his sufferings and glories to follow. Remember Philippians chapter 2. He went down and was exalted. It is the same for us. The way up is down. Can I be humble? Can I grow in Christ? Am I teachable? Will I listen? 
blocks communication of godly sources. He desires to be preeminent over others. He rejects godly counsel and scripture. Now, now John says this. He does not accept what we say. Now, this is John the Apostle. This is no other, this is not some regular pastor. This is John the Apostle, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who was chilling with Jesus at the Last Supper. Who reclined next to Christ. Who touched Christ. Who felt his scars. This is the apostle who when he writes it becomes scripture. Do you understand? So this person rejects leadership over him. Right? He rejects leadership over him. Now let me tell you guys something. It says here he doesn't accept what we say. Do not follow a man or a woman who will not submit to others' rightful leadership within the church. Do not follow them, brothers and sisters. And let me tell you why. It is evidence that they will not, they will not submit to Christ himself. And if they won't submit to Christ himself, they are not going to submit to Christ's way or shepherding of leading you. If they've not learned shepherding. My advice is to run. Now, a person who will not submit and behave under rightful and biblical authority will not care how they shepherd and lead. Ultimately, they reject Christ's servant leadership and will not care about those whom he leads. Paul talks about this. Look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Chapter 6. First Timothy. Chapter 6. Now here, how do we know as a church? How will we know? How will you know? What's a good test? Here's the test. Very easy, okay? God, this is what I love. God has given us his scriptures so that we would be free, but also so you would not be manipulated. I love it. It sets us free to be strong in the scriptures so that we could make and discern rightly what God has said. And so that when we have a situation where we don't know what to do, God's word is very clear. In the morass of, of ambiguity and the fog of what is called Christian culture, I want to know what is right. I want to know how I could stand up. And here he says here, this is how you know, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Notice, how do you know? They teach different doctrines. See, this is so, so opposite with the way people look for churches in uh, nowadays. When people come to churches, they go, does it, have, does, it have a, um, does it have a kid's playground for our kids? Does it, have, uh, does it have activities at the beach all the time? Does it have, um, do we have uh, camp getaways? And do we have all these other things that we can do? They don't stop and think. The first thing you ought to think about, the first thing you ought to stop and evaluate a ministry, evaluate a teacher, and evaluate a church is, what do they teach? 
And the only way you're going to ever know how to, if it's right or not, is if you've been studying the Word of God yourself. If you've been availing yourself to discipleship, availing yourself to home group, availing yourself to the uh, ministries of the church to grow. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, this is what the Bible says about that person. He is conceited. Conceited. Understands nothing. Has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. Have you ever been around people like this? They just always want to fight. They always want to argue. And in fact, they don't even understand scripture. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So there's the motives. But motives can't be ascertained, brothers and sisters. You can't just say, hey, I know your motive. You can't, you can't do that. Okay. You, you can't read people's minds. Right? Motives cannot be ascertained simply because you say it. Oh, you did this because of this. That's kind of how the world is right now. You say this because you're a racist or a sexist or a misogynist. I already just know. I know. I have declared thus you are. Right? You can't do that. That's unfair. It's, uh, it doesn't give people the benefit of the doubt. And, and so John doesn't even do that. To say he has pride and that's the only reason why is like to say, Oh, he has hair. Everyone has pride, correct? Thinking only of himself. Thinking it's all about himself. Rather, what are the evidences of his pride that make him unfit to be a leader? What did he do? So John says, he's going to explain what are the fruits of his pride that he has not repented of. And he, he reviews the evidence of unrepentant sin in verse 10. Look at it, verse 10. Go back to 3 John. He reviews the evidence of unrepentant sin. Notice he says here in verse 10, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. The word deeds, these are not just accusations, but actions. The word actually comes from works or ergonomics. He actually did something. And so John is going to reveal that later on when he sees him face to face. One of the things that he did is he unjustly accused us with wicked words. The unjustly accusing really has this, this meaning of nonsense, nonsensical accusing. We say it in our vernacular, he says, uh, you're talking a lot of nonsense, right? Instead of dealing with the biblical doctrines at hand, instead of dealing with what is to be done by the arbiter of truth, which is scripture, they come to this situation and they say, well, you know what? It's the guy's character. And so for John, instead of attacking what he was teaching in the scriptures, he attacks John. It's the classic ad hominem attack, right? Rather than attacking to what he is teaching, he's attacking who John is. And this is exactly why, as a leader, uh, the apostle Paul says, don't accept the accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses, right? Because this happens all the time. And so he says here, they're attacking. They're attacking me. Unjust accusations. 
No basis. I remember I was, uh, when, I, when I was going through this back in uh, South Asia, I was talking to him and he says, well, I just don't like him. Well, 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 what did he do? Well, I just don't like him. Well, what don't you like about him? I, I just don't, I prefer not to be around him. I said, that's sinful. Do you have any basis? Did he do anything biblical? Is there any sin in his life? No. Well, I just don't like him. And so you're starting a whole hubbub because you just don't like him. Yeah. Sadly, it infects the church. Yeah, I don't like him. You don't like him? Yeah, I don't like him neither. And all of a sudden, with no biblical basis, all these things start to come up. And this is what John is saying. If there is really something about what I am teaching, and then you need to talk to me about what the scriptures say. Let's hash it out, right? Let's compare it to what the Bible says. He's not satisfied with this, he says in verse 10. He himself does not receive the brethren. Now, he moves past this and he says he closes off hospitality. The real issue is when he closes off hospitality and what, what we've learned about that from last week is that the hospitality that was being offered were for those who have, who are firm on the gospel, who teach the gospel, who teach about Jesus Christ, and you want to help those who do that so that they're on their way in a manner worthy of the Lord. Diotrephes didn't want to receive them, thereby halting the progress of the gospel. And so John is just reiterating, he says, remember in 2 John, he said, don't help those who do not teach the gospel. And in 3 John here, he says, you will do well, verse 6, to send them on their way in a manner of worthy God. He goes, help those who do the gospel, who preach the gospel, who live the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, who preach the gospel. And now he's saying here that Diotrephes didn't do that. In fact, he was hindering the work. And not only did he not, not only is he hindering the work, but he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. He manipulatively uses church discipline to fulfill his own means and agenda. He uses what was God gave us to protect the church from sin to protect his own sin from being exposed. Now, how we are, how we are to measure this. Notice he says, we are also not only to review the evidence of unrepentant sin. So when we have these things, brothers and sisters, and they will come, let me tell you. Okay? Every church will face difficulties. Every church will face uh, personalities coming in. Every, face will, every church will face it. How are you as a congregation going to deal with it? So you are to first... Recognize the motive of ungodly pride. Review the evidence of unrepentant sin. Is it really there, right? And you're to recall the doctrine of spiritual birth. Look at verse 11. He says here, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And he doesn't leave it as, okay, you guys got to do good. You got to help good people. You got to help those who do the gospel. He doesn't just leave it there. He says this, The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil is has not seen God. And then he moves on to Demetrius, who is a, an example of one who, has, who is a preacher of the gospel, who is a teacher of the gospel. And now, what does he say? 
Well, he's saying this, that we are to review the, we are to recall the doctrine of spiritual rebirth, that the one who does good is of God, the one who does evil has not seen God. In other words, he's using metaphor, the metaphor of seeing. The metaphor of being saved is, is being, uh, uh, the fact of being saved is being illustrated as seeing God. And what he says here is, if they are one who continually wants to break the church up, if they are one who continually wants to assert his own way, if they are one who wants to continually be the center and the focus, he says here, they probably don't even know who Christ is. They probably were not even saved. Why? Because the saved person would care about the church. Now he uses this, he uses this in 1 John chapter 4. Look at it a couple books before, and you'll see how does he use this as a metaphor, seeing. 1 John chapter 4. Notice he says here, verse, verses 6 through 10. Oh, hold on. Oh, I'm sorry. Chapter 3, 6 through 10. Got it wrong. No one, chapter 3, 6 through 10. No one who abides in him sins. That's not talking about instance of sin. He's, it's talking about perpetually sinning as a practice of sin, right? No one who sins, here it is, here it is, okay, verse 6, has seen him or knows him. We all, we, we're going to see what this metaphor means. It means the rebirth. Someone has been changed. God has come upon their life. They have received Christ through faith. Their lives are changed. And they no longer live for themselves. They live for Christ. This is what God does, right? Notice he says here, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, verse 10, the children of the God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The way John tells us to figure this out is to remember that the way that folks' lives are changed when they are saved. Okay. What do they teach? What are the accusations? Do they live a life that is consistent with what a Christian is? A regenerated Christian. He doesn't want you to be to check your judgment at the door. Folks try and intimidate you by saying, they try and intimidate you. Doesn't the Bible says do not judge? Doesn't the Bible says do not? It doesn't say that. It says, do not judge lest you be judged, right? And it tells us not to judge hypocritically or unrighteously. But it does tell us to judge, to discern is what the scriptures teach, so that we would not be led astray. And this is one of the main things that is a problem with the church. We don't wait for the leaders to be ready by God. We don't allow God to raise them up. They, they can play a guitar, throw them up. They could lead worship because they play a good guitar. I was hearing, uh, I was hearing one of my friends and uh, 
cousin was telling me he, uh, back in Vallejo, he says, yeah, I couldn't believe it. My cousin goes to this one church, and, uh, you know, they have a whole band. They're not even saved. They don't even believe what they're singing. But he could shred. It's crazy. We need to stop and evaluate. What's their life like? What's the doctrine? Do they live a life consistent with being saved? A gentleman visited RBC for about a month, uh, many months ago. Couple, maybe, could I say two years now? He came, I came to realize he only wanted to lead us in what he perceived are areas of worship, which in his words, you do not have. He believed in sign miracles. He believed that God uh, in, um, and I told him to prove it through scripture. I proceeded to tell him we have everything in Christ. We just went through Ephesians, right? He said, no, you don't. Right against the scripture, he said that. He said, but if you let me in front, I, I remember the words, right? If you let me in front, I can show you. I showed him in scripture where he was wrong. I asked him to show me in scripture where we are called to do what he suggested. He had no scripture. He, he had no Bible verse. He says, but it's powerful. I said, but where's the scripture? He said, but it's powerful. I said, but where's the scripture? He says, it's powerful. I said, if it's not in scripture, we're not interested. I was hoping it would be dropped and he would stick around, humble himself and learn. I was hoping for that. I was praying for that, for his heart. The simple fact that he didn't care whether or not it was in scripture and that he was going to do it anyways demonstrates arrogance. I don't care if it's not in scripture. I'm going to do it anyways because of my sense, perceive my, uh, my own self-perception of it's powerful. You understand? Doesn't matter what God says about the issue, right? The arrogance before God that you would know better than him in how to lead a church. I hoped it would go away and that he would stick with us and grow. That was my prayer. Rather than that, unbeknownst to me, he started to speak to the other men about the same topic. Which I specifically told him was unbiblical, therefore in error. He secretly spoke to a number of men, trying to gain a following, to persuade by personality rather than by scripture. To lure by flash instead of scriptural message and scriptural substance. I thankfully say that the men at RBC were discerning and courageous enough to tell him the truth. When he realized there would be no foothold, no popularity contest won here for his unscriptural practice, he moved on. This is how we protect the church, brothers and sisters. We test what folks believe, how folks behave to the unchanging scripture, and we allow the Bible to be the final arbiter of faith and practice. To borrow the reformer's language, we believe in sola scriptura. And how is, this, how is this done? It is done by those Saturday mornings, 
early Saturday mornings, those Thursday afternoons, when you are meeting in discipleship over a cup of coffee, talking about the truths of God, interacting with the truths of God, interacting with what you heard during the sermon, and growing, being steadfast in the truth. As a congregation, you must stop self-ambitious people. Not allow them to get a foothold and determine what is to be believed and how to live. God's word is the final rule. As a congregation, you must stop self-ambitious people. Second, you must support Christ-glorifying people. You must support Christ-glorifying people. Notice he says in verses 12 to 14 of 3 John, 12 to 14, he says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Verse 12a, notice he says here, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. This is how you support, these are the kind of people we support and we love and we, and we help. Okay? They are first verified by the people of God. They are verified by the people of God. Here are the checks, if you want to know what checks and balances are. right? The checks and balances in the local church are these things. Okay? First, they are verified by the people of God. Notice he says here, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. The people of God recognize this. If you remember even in Acts chapter 6, when, when they said, hey, the elders need to focus on prayer and the preaching of the word and teaching of the word, then the elders, they said, well, let, let's, he says in verse chapter 6, verse 3 of Acts Chapter 6, verse 3 says, Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. He tells them, Church, you know your people. You bring forth your people who are filled with the Spirit, who have a good testimony, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who hold on, who holds on to sound doctrine who will defend the faith, who is humble and trusts in Christ, you bring those people up. Why? Because you know them best. So they are verified by the people of God. Do not... I, I, I was, I was uh, talking to Jeremy one time, and we were marveling at how many, how many churches are started by guys who are not sent by churches. It's unbiblical and it's scary. That's exactly how cults start. There is no check for them. You have, the church is the, is the means by which God verifies them, checks their lives, sees them serve year after year. Faithfulness, fruitfulness, adherence to the word of God. Are they verified by the church? No. He just had a feeling in his heart. Oh, that's sad. You'll, you'll even choose your restaurants better than that. Did you know that? I do. I go to Yelp, check the reviews, go to the lowest review, go to the highest review, go to the ones who are the most current, right? I'm checking because I want a good restaurant, right? And yet, sadly, churches are started with guys who are not approved, not verified, not tested, who haven't stood in the fire, right, of ministry and gospel work. And that never shown any fruit. 
well, I, I want to teach and I want to preach and I want to encourage people. Okay, so what are you doing now? How are you doing that in the church? Well, I just want to start doing that. Okay, have you ever done that? No, I just want to be up front. Well, how are we going to send you? You have no track record. That is just crazy. He has a feeling in his heart. God told me in my dream. No. The Bible says Demetrius was what? Verified by the people of God. Spurgeon said it this way. Churches are not all wise, neither do they all judge in the power of the Holy Ghost, but many of them judge after the flesh. Yet, he's saying, even if the churches get it wrong, okay? Yet, I had sooner accept the opinion of a company of the Lord's people than my own upon so personal subject as my own gifts and graces. At any rate, whether you value the verdict of the church or not, one thing is certain, that none of you can be pastors without the loving consent of the flock. And therefore, this will be to you a practical indicator, if not a correct one. If your call from the Lord be a real one, you will not long be silent. As surely as a man waits his hour, so surely the hour waits its man. In other words, and this, these words stung in my heart when I was growing up, as I was preparing. And I heard horror stories. I'm just going to be transparent with you here. I didn't trust myself. I still don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. My heart is, can be prone to sin. Desperately wicked. I would not extend myself in ministry unless the church verified me. Do you understand? It is, fool, it is a foolhardy thing. You're leading and no one's following. That is foolhardy. It is arrogant. You are presupposing the call of God on your life with nobody verifying it simply because I feel I'm gifted. And no verification from the church. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go forward. I wouldn't invite myself to preach different places. I wouldn't invite myself to say, hey, I could teach for you or anything. Because I knew myself. I knew that, you know, if, when you have a speaking gift, let me just tell you from my experience, when you have a speaking gift, there, the Bible divides the gifts, the spiritual gifts into speaking and serving, right? When you have a speaking gift and you're always in front of people, you walk this fine line of glorifying Christ or glorifying yourself, right? Very fine line where you have to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness and ask God to glorify himself, so that I wouldn't be in the way. May I decrease, may Christ increase, right? Now, having said that, as I was growing in, in the ministry, I would not invite myself to other places. Because if God really wanted me there, I would get the invitation. Do you understand? I would not push myself. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. There will be a time when you are called to do something. You're going to be so tired. Some of you are doing it right now. You're so tired right now. You have like five or six ministry hats that you're working in. But let me tell you this. Okay? There is so much work to be done in the kingdom of God. Busy yourself in getting ready for it. Busy yourself in being steadfast in the word of God. Busy yourself in being submissive to the word of God. 
And that comes to our next point. You're, this person is verified by the word of God. This person is, excuse me, verified by the people of God. This person is also verified by the word of God. Look at 12b. He received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. He received a testimony from the truth itself. This is no short of the scriptures. He holds to sound doctrine. And, and uh, you women who have been going through Titus chapter 1 and Titus chapter 2, as Jeanette has been teaching, we know that the qualification for an elder is someone who holds to sound doctrine. Look at Titus chapter 1. I want to show you this. These are the people who we support. Now, some pe- um, Ty will tell you, I, we get emails from people all over the world. We get people, uh, emails from people from Africa, from India, wanting us to send money, wanting us to train them. And we want to train people. That's exactly what we want to do. But we check them out. We say, I, I say, I've got friends in Africa who we train. Can I send them to you? No, I don't want that. Because you want American money. And we talk, uh, we have this over and over. We have all these emails. We want to check them out. They have to be checked by the word of God. Look at here. First Timothy, uh, excuse me, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. These are the kind of leaders we want. Verse 7. Where am I? For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed. He's going to go over through this, this battery of characteristics. Not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Verse 9, this is what he must do. Okay, This is what a leader, and even in any kind of leadership role, this is what you must do. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. They are verified by the truth. They encourage and exhort by scripture. They refute false error by scripture. Thirdly, they are verified by the leadership of God. This person is verified by the people of God, the word of God, and the leadership of God. He says here in 12c, uh, from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. We bear witness, John, as a, disi- uh, as a disciple of Christ, an apostle, but he is acting as a leader there. We understand that too. We observed him. We know him. We know that we are telling. he is telling the truth. And so, he says here to, even in, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance and with the laying on of hands by the Presbyterian. They were verified, Timothy was verified by the leadership of God, elders. They lay their hands on Timothy, and Demetrius was probably laid hands too, because he, he was approved by John. This laying of hands is not anything magic. Okay? I am not bestowing my powers upon you or anything like that. 
It is simply when the elders, it is simply verifying what the church has already done, what the word of God has already done. Now the elders are on board and they put their hands on the individuals as a sign of recognition that this is a person who will hold to the gospel truth, teach Christ, and stay faithful to the task. Oh, the church has all these protections and we don't use it. Many churches don't, right? God has called us to protect the church. But here, notice he says, lastly, lastly, we are to rest in the comfort of God. So you ensure the approval of God, but we are to rest in the comfort of God. Look at verse 14c. I hope I will see you shortly. We will speak face to face. And I think... John is saying there are things too personal, too private that I need to share with you. I need to talk to you face by face, face to face. Isn't that appropriate now? So many people blast their whole problems on Facebook and on Twitter, right? We as a church still need to learn how to speak to one another face to face. And here he says here, peace be with you. Now, when I say rest in the comfort of God, we have to understand the context. First, Gaius is a saved man, right? He was saved. He knows the Lord Jesus. He has been regenerated. He has the peace of God within him. He has peace with God and peace with other men. Other men. And now he is being hospitable. And John tells him to be hospitable to those who work, who serve the gospel in faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand what was happening. Diotrephes is he knows this, and he says, "Anyone who helps these preachers, I'm going to cast you out." And John is telling him, don't you worry. You hold to this. You stay to those who are faithful. And he tells him, you will not be able to do this. You will not be able to stand against the the fiery darts of Diotrephes. You will not be able to face his, his popularity and his own coup unless you know that God is on your side. Unless you know that you have the peace of God over you. Unless you know that According to this gospel, you are staying straight on. You need the peace of God. Now, there was a pastor, a Filipino pastor, who was part of an organization. His name is Nilo Sanchez. We came to know him. He was a good friend in 1993. We, he, we brought him over to a community Bible church. And there were some serious doctrinal issues that he did not know. And he will admit it to you. Many of you have heard him preach. He came here to preach on a Good Friday, uh, not this Good Friday, but the one before. He did not hold to right doctrine. He'll admit it to you. And then he came across the doctrines of grace, which changed his life. He was a saved man, and now he knew that God has a plan, and he is saving people, and he has elected people before the foundation of the earth, and he is using people to draw them out. He saw a different vision of the scriptures. He saw it clearly in the text as it was taught. Now he goes back to the Philippines. And he starts to teach that truth. And the organization rejects him. They call him a persona non grata, right? They they tell him he's no longer, they stripped him of his title. They stripped him of everything. And he calls our pastor back and he says, Steve, I am teaching what the scriptures teach, and I have no support. Now, what do I do? 
Do you bend? Because they give it, they're giving you the money. Sadly, many men do. They'll bend on, uh, we don't really have to teach that doctrine because they're paying us. And God wants us to be paid, right? He wants us to be paid. That's not a good, that's not a good testimony if we're not paid. And here is Nilo saying, I have to stand for the truth. And it's going to cost me. They stripped them all of everything. And so Steve's sitting there with the elders of CBC saying, we have to help. We have to be, we have to be Gaius helping Demetrius. Do you see it? Do you see it? We can't be intimidated by those kicking them out. We can't be stopped. Why? Because the truth, here it is, guys, here it is. It's not about personality. It's not about who you like more. It's about the truth of God. Who proclaims it? Who holds to it? Who teaches it? Why? It's about the glory of Christ. This determines who we help and who we don't help in missions. This determines who we push forward and encourage in missions. Because it's about Christ. It's not about the personality. And so we picked up Nilo. And from that started our whole missions agency. ECMI. Now they have, I don't know, 14 missionaries all over the world. Because we realized that they were not teaching the word of God. And now God has vindicated Nilo. And he's trained over 800 men. They planted churches all over the Philippines. And I love going there and preaching because I get to experience my favorite things. I get to preach, eat Filipino food, and spearfish all at the same time. <laughs> but it is a blessing. Brothers and sisters, stop self-ambitious people. First, stop it here in yourself. Stop it in your own heart. Don't yearn to be recognized. Just yearn to be faithful. Secondly, support Christ-glorifying people. If it's not you, you can support others, right? Because if it really is about the glory of Christ, it doesn't matter who's the trumpet. Amen? And this is why, brothers and sisters, I hope you know, our heart here at RBC is to train. And that's why some of you are in training. Uh, and we're... we're helping you through that and equipping because we really believe it's the glory of Christ and we believe that God can use you. It, and we don't think it should come out of just one man. It should be coming out of all of you. Amen? Because his glory is worth it. Thank you, Jesus, that you've saved us and changed us. I pray for those who don't know you that they would realize what this importance is. Why, why were you so insistent upon the truth of God and your word. It's because it, you are the only way to salvation. You have given us peace. You've allowed us to withstand the waves, the accusations for your, for your glory, for the gospel. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you employ us in your ministry. Lord, I pray if there's a Christian here who is desiring to be trained, I pray that they would, you would work in their hearts such that they can be 
trained and sent out for your glory. Lord, I pray if those, there are folks here who don't know you, that they would get their answers, uh, their questions answered. What does it mean? Why is the gospel so important? He is the only means of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.